0: From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com.
1: It's a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Thursday with Dominican Father Brian Mullady. Uh, as the gentleman told you, we won't be taking your phone calls today because we are installing brand spanking new HD cameras in our radio studio today, and we're getting a brand new soundboard, because Father Brian Mullady deserves the best, and we're giving him wow. the best. <laughs> yeah. So it's all for you, bro. all for you, Father. <laughs> <laughs> right. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall, producing the program, and you've already you've already had audible evidence of our uh, Open Line Thursday host, Father Brian Mullady. How are you?
2: Fine. Greetings from Saint Elizabeth Ann Seton in Houston, Texas.
1: Well, giddy uh, up! Have you been to the? Uh, have you been to uh, any uh, hoedowns or?
2: Uh... No, I've been busy working. Oh,
1: okay. <laughs> silly, silly me! Preaching, <laughs> preaching, preach the word. Right? Uh, all right, is the mission going well? I guess you'll have to ask the pastor.
2: <laughs> uh, I think so. Yeah, they yeah. seem to like it. So.
1: So speaking of preaching. Um, there was this voice crying out in the wilderness back in the day who uh, claimed not to be the Messiah and uh, got into a river with Jesus at one point. And uh, some people are a little unclear as to exactly what all this means.
2: Well, since we're making this program at Advent and a good number of the readings there by John the Baptist, I thought that I would just uh, comment on the baptism of John in relation to the baptism of Christ. It was common around the time our Lord came to earth for at least people in the Mediterranean world to realize that things were not all they should be. And they needed to be cleansed, you could say. And that wasn't just true of the Jews. It was also true of the pagans because they had mystery cults where they practiced ritual washings to wash themselves clean. Of course, John the Baptist, many people believe are connected is connected with the Essenes, and they also practice a baptismal ritual. But the question becomes then, what's the relationship of the baptism of John to our Lords? And part of it is because some people have become come to belittle the baptism by water, some of the Protestant sects and also some of the charismatics and it's true that John's baptism is only by water. You may remember this difficulty in understanding occurred even as into the Acts of the Apostles. It was a baptism basically demonstrating a person's desire for repentance and salvation. And so, in itself, it did not confer grace, it merely was a testimony to the fact that, well, John's preaching, of course, is that the Messiah is imminent. He's coming almost immediately near, very near. So when John compares himself to our Lord, remember they, at least in last Sunday's gospel, these soldiers and the tax collectors and all those people asked what they might do as a sign of their repentance, and he gives them a list. And then they say, well, are you the Messiah? And he says, no, no, because my baptism is only a baptism by water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, when Christ is baptized in the Jordan, the water touches him, but he doesn't need to be cleansed. In touching him, Christ confers on the water then when he dies on the cross the ability to cleanse us. So, you have the spirit, the water, and the blood, and the fire, and all these things are necessary in Christian baptism. So all of us who were baptized into Christ, when the water touched us, we were, we had grace conferred on us, the grace of repentance. So we did have the Holy Spirit introduced into our souls so that we could have intimacy with God. And we also had the fire of charity introduced into our souls so that we could burn away whatever was left of the dross of original sin. But Christ's baptism truly is cleansing. John's baptism was a water baptism, which looked forward to cleansing. Christ blessed it. He did not deny it. Baptism by water is still necessary. But in Christ's baptism of the new Testament, this baptism, well, the phrase that used is ex opere operato, but the very fact that the work performed confers grace, sanctifying grace on the recipient.
1: So, again, it's a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Thursday. We're not going to be taking your phone calls today. We're going to empty out the mailbag and we'll start that post-haste. Susan has sent in an email looking for a little clarification. She says, what does it mean when we say that Jesus will come back to judge the living and the dead? I thought the dead were already judged. Well,
2: there are two judgments. There is the particular judgment, which occurs when we die, and we become worthy of heaven or hell. Purgatory, of course. People who are worthy of heaven, but they have a sort of moral cleansing that needs to go on of whatever's left of the dross of the original sin of lust here on earth, but they're, they're destined for heaven. But we are told, and of course, remember in that particular judgment, we do not receive our bodies back. The only people who have their bodies now in heaven are Jesus and Mary. In the general judgment, which occurs at the end of time, and which Advent, again, prepares us for, our Lord Jesus Christ, who came once in weakness, now comes with power and glory. And before all the assembled creation, people receive their bodies back, and also the mouth of our Lord pronounces the judgment as to whether they've actually lived the law of charity or not, and everybody will know. So we have that famous statement, uh, nothing will be hidden that is not made plain. That occurs in the general judgment and the entire assembled creation will be witness to our inner conscience. For the people who have been sinners and converted, oh, this will add to their glory. Also the people who are, well we all sinners really, uh, but I mean, you know, serious sin that will add to their glory. And for those of us who tried to live a good life, this will add to our glory, too. And if people have accused us unjustly, we'll be vindicated before the entire assembled creation. For the people who are sinners, this will add to their suffering because now it will all be known. And especially people who have had hidden sins where they plotted against others and not been caught or they've destroyed others and not been uh, uh, made known. Now all will be made known. And so there are two basic judgments. There's the particular judgment, and then when time ends, which is when the number of the elect is filled up, there's the general judgment, which is pretty much described in the apocalypse. And, of course, in Matthew 25.
1: And any of the faithful who are deemed worthy of heaven in their at their particular judgment, have nothing to fear in the general judgment, right? Well, they're in heaven.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it's just their body isn't there yet, yes. Yeah. So in other words... Uh, but so, in the many general people, judgment, so many
1: people are so freaked out by the notion of everything being laid bare that they, they get themselves all worked up over it.
2: Well, that's true, but the, the thing is, if you are worthy of heaven... Whatever you've done that you're not proud of has been purged already in purgatory, and this will add to the glorification of God and also to Christ's Messiah, and therefore it will add to your happiness that you actually have been forgiven. So you, you need not fear anything. You need to realize that what you're doing is, again, falling into the everlasting arms of him who you say you've loved all throughout your life.
1: And again, this is a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Thursday. Father Brian Milady is in the house. If you'd like to be part of a future mailbag program, you can simply send us an email. That email address is openline at EWTN.com. That's openline at EWTN.com. And you can put something like Thursday or Father Brian in the subject line and we will get it to the appropriate folder. You can also text your question, and we can use your text on a future mailbag program. Uh, Just simply text the letters EWTN to 55000. Wait for a response. Text your first name and your question. Message and data rates may apply. So once again, it's a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Thursday. So we will not be taking your phone calls today, but be sure to tune in next Thursday if you want to talk to Father Brian Mullady, or the Thursday after that, or the Thursday after that, and we'd be happy to take your phone calls at that time. Again, if you want to be part of a future program, please don't hesitate. Open Line at EWTN.com.
0: This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com.
1: So again, it's a mailbag edition of Open Line Thursday. Father Brian Milady is in the house. And Father, here's a little bit of a follow-up to our last discussion. Uh, Ryan writes in, I know heaven is eternal and outside of our earthly time, but is purgatory also outside our earthly time? How long do we have to wait for our souls to be repaired if time doesn't apply to us?
2: Purgatory is not really outside of our earthly time in the sense only that it's a process. Uh, It belongs to what's basically, in fact it will end at the end of time. The purgatory has to do with the passive, receptive purgation of love of the people who are there so that they could enter heaven. We used to measure it in things like days, months, years, indulgences about purgatory, quarantines, they had all these strange sort of uh, measurements for indulgences regarding the redemption from uh, you know, resolution of our temporal punishment due to sin. But in the post-Vatican II period, they just reduced it to partial and plenary indulgences. Now, since it's a process, it can be speeded up, and that's where we come in. The pur- people in purgatory cannot make active purgation because they don't have bodies. Here on earth, if we stole something from someone, we can always give it back. We can't do that in purgatory. It's merely receptive. However, we, here on earth, through our union of charity with Christ, through the infinite treasure of merit in Christ, and by our prayers, apply the love of Christ to this process. So in the case of a plenary indulgence, it can be immediately resolved and the soul enjoys heaven immediately. And it's not that Christ forces us to this, it's the idea that you wouldn't want to meet Christ with all these things still left over from your remembrances and your deeds here on earth. The basically purgatory is resolved when the soul finally is satisfied that it has made satisfaction. Uh, so that it can enter heaven with total and complete joy.
1: Again, a mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Thursday. No phone calls today, please. Uh, we've got a, a question from a non-Catholic brother or sister here, Amy. and She wants to know, why do Catholics have to go to confession in person and not over the phone?
2: Catholics have to go to confession in person because it's a personal encounter with our Lord. The priest is merely the mediator between the two. Uh, You're not confessing to the priest as such, you're confessing to our Lord. You can't call up Jesus on the phone. And the uh, necessity of this personal dimension is so strong that we require it of people because we are a religion of human beings. You know, today everything's reduced to a machine people would like a text message, their confession. You you can't do that. I personally find text messaging quite, I mean, I find it expedient sometimes, but for the people who've reduced their whole lives, to text messages, it seems to me that this is impersonal and also rude. If you were told you were going to say this directly to our Lord, would you want to text message him? No, you want to talk to him directly. After all, our Lord is so wonderful, you'd want to be in his presence fully. So in confession, the priest merely hears and he offers advice because it's important to have a human face. And then he confers the absolution. But really, it's Jesus who's absolving your sins through him. So you must remember, and one of the reasons why we can't share what goes on in confession, the so-called seal, is because these words are not said to us. Even if we know of a possible murder or something, we can't reveal it because the words are not said to us. A person is owed from their conscience directly to Jesus. Would you want to do that over the phone? I don't think so. It has to be something that involves human beings and the fullness of your humanity.
1: If you'd like to be part of a future mailbag edition of Open Line Thursday, send us an email to openline at EWTN.com and put Thursday or Father Brian in the subject line. Um, The question's a little broad, uh, Father. You can narrow in however you see fit. But Fred would like to know, where does the justification for the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception come from? Well,
2: the justification of the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception basically comes in the angel salutation to Mary where he says she's full of grace and being full of grace means that not only does she not have any actual sins, but original sin never touched her body. That's basically where it comes from. Also, it seems fitting that that's the case because in the readings we read for the feast of the Immaculate Conception, we have the statement made that Ephesians that God has loved each of us with a personal providence before the world began, that we should be holy and blameless in his sight. Well, in our case, that involves being cleansed from original sin. In Mary's case, because Christ is to come from her, it's not fitting that any sin should touch her. And as a result, God miraculously preserved her from experiencing this. Now, she does have to be redeemed. She can't be separate from the redemption but the traditional explanation given for this was Dun Scotus's, a Franciscan theologian, who maintained that in light of her participation in all the deeds that Christ would do to bring about our redemption, all of his suffering and things, that Mary, therefore, by miracle, did not suffer any effects of original sin at all.
1: Um, got a question from Tina, and uh, I, I don't know that I've really contemplated this one myself to any degree. Um, she says, when Christ was incarnate, he took on human nature in addition to his divine nature. But I learned that when Christ took on human nature, he took on human nature eternally as well. Is this true, and would this compromise his divine nature?
2: Um, well, it depends on what you mean by eternally. The uh, incarnation obviously began in a time. Christ didn't have a human nature eternally. He had it when he was conceived in Mary's womb. Now, he can never lose it. I mean, the hypostatic union in which the the human nature is united to the person of the word will never be lost. It can't lose that. It's a special, special grace. But the um, initial. Taking on was, of course, in time. Obviously, this doesn't compromise his divine nature because his human nature is still limited. It's mortal. Uh, Christ died on the cross. He rose from the dead. He's got a human body, a human soul. The divine nature does not have any of that. It's the union that's eternal. The nature itself remains limited. Human nature, that is. Yeah.
1: Uh, Steve would like to know, he says, I see in the Old Testament that special graces come through the name of God. Does this have any connection to the New Testament saying, at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bend?
2: Uh, it certainly does. Uh, Hebrew names uh, express their na- the nature of the person whom they, or thing they were naming. So God's name, as you know, is very mysterious. The Jews didn't even pronounce it. Yahweh I am who am it really isn't a proper name as such but because it's so holy they wouldn't pronounce it uh, because it represents this transcendent being in Jesus's case the giving of the name Jesus itself has to do with Savior and so as a result uh, the holy name of Jesus is a special devotion in the Catholic Church and uh, I remember many years ago we had a pr- discussion by province of the Dominicans because all the provinces are named after saints or holy things in addition to being territorial. And so we had a person who was big into social justice and he wanted to change the name of our province to St. Martin de Porres because of the you know the uh, civil rights movement at the time. Well, one of our priests stood up and said, wait a minute, wait a minute. We have the greatest name any province could have on earth. We're the province of the holy name of Jesus. How can you get better than that? <laughs> because you're right. Every knee shall bend in heaven, on the earth, and under the earth. Because this expresses who Jesus is, our redeemer, and therefore God and man it with the divine person. And
1: uh, here, here's an here's an easy one for you. Here's a, a layup question for you, Father. Um, Anne would like to know, is it okay for a deacon to preach the sermon at Sunday Mass instead of the priest?
2: Of course it is. One of the deacon's ministries is preaching the Word. And, uh, of course, they need to be prepared to do so, and they need to have enough theological knowledge to do so. And they should have enough rhetorical skills also to do so. But one of the deacon's functions is to read the gospel and also to give the homily, yes.
1: And um, it should be a priest or a deacon that gives a homily at at a Mass, right?
2: Yes, and the reason for this is very deep and interesting. You know, the liturgy of the Word and the liturgy of the Eucharist are intimately connected to each other. It's not like first we have the kind of lesson, and then we go into The Mass. No, the readings are a part of the Mass, and so is the homily, because they prepare us to understand what actually goes on in the action. So no one should preach at Mass, at Mass, I underline. People can preach outside of Mass if they want to, but no one should preach at Mass who is not a minister of the altar at which transubstantiation occurs. And intimately involved in it. So that would be the priest or the deacon.
1: Again, it's a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Thursday. Um, Heather wants to know, how does the Holy Spirit proceed from the Father and the Son?
2: Well, the question of the procession of the Holy Spirit, as you know, is a debated one between the Eastern and Western churches. The Western church has always accepted the formula that the Holy Spirit proceeds in the Father and the Son after the manner of love. And so much so is this true that the ancient fathers used to call the Holy Spirit the osculum suavissimum, which is a Latin word which means the most sweet kiss of the Father for the Son. So just as two human lovers share life and breath when they kiss each other, so the infinite Father and the infinite Son. Both from both comes the infinite Spirit who represents their love for each other as the Son does the Word and therefore their knowledge of each
1: other. Again, it's a mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Thursday, so we're not taking your phone calls today. If you'd like to be part of a future mailbag edition uh, of Open Line, send us an email openline at EWTN.com it's Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Mulady.
0: This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com.
1: Um, Arnold writes in and says, My Protestant friend believes that The ninth and 10th chapters of Hebrews disprove Catholicism because Catholics continually offer sacrifice. How can I explain that it's one sacrifice?
2: Well, the sacrifice now goes on in heaven that occurred on earth. And Hebrews is reflecting this using the great liturgy of Yom Kippur. And uh, so We're not, I think what he means is the Protestants accuses of offering the sacrifice over and over and over again, as though the bloody sacrifice was inadequate or something like that. No, the one sacrifice which Jesus offered once and for all on the cross in a bloody way is continuously offered in heaven by Christ in his loving obedience, giving himself to his father as priest and victim, and then seeking to transform us in our own time by us being a part of that one sacrifice in our time, in our place. But it's not a different sacrifice. The way the Council of Trent put it is this. The priest is the same. The victim is the same. Only the manner of offering differs. In the bloody sacrifice 2,000 years ago, of course, it was the shedding of blood. In the sacrifice, which occurs in the mass and reflects a continuous offering of Christ in heaven. This is an unbloody sacrifice, but it's all the same sacrifice.
1: And we've got a, uh, an email from John, and he's got two related questions. He's looking for a little clarification on mortal sin. Uh, the first part of the question is, if one of the conditions for mortal sin is to know that something is serious matter, But the person, such as a non-Catholic, does not believe in the gradation of sin. Can he commit a mortal sin?
2: Well, of course he can commit a mortal sin, (laughs) because certainly the Protestants accept the commandments. In fact, I think their problem is with venial sin, not with mortal sin. Uh, They don't make any distinction between the two, and uh, we do. So uh, the fact that they wouldn't know about the idea of it being a mortal sin Well, I think for them, there are no sins that are not mortal, which is very weird, I think. But um, yes, of course he can. Anybody who knows that something is directly and seriously against the commandments and wills it as such commits a mortal sin, whether they
1: call it that or not. And he follows up by asking... If one of the conditions for mortal sin is that the act itself must be serious matter, but a person mistakenly believes something is serious matter that is not, and still freely chooses this act, is that mortal sin?
2: Well, it would be subjectively, because you perceive it as being deeply against the law of God. But you do it anyway. Now, of course, such a person has to be educated. And I can tell you that there's a lot of people that come to confession today who really don't seem to be able to make any distinction between mortal and venial sin. And you try to explain to them that's not really a sinner, it's only a venial sin. And, and a lot of them, they won't accept it, you know. I mean, it's I, recently in COVID, you know, I've had a lot of people confess missing mass on Sunday. And I say, yeah, but remember there was this dispensation by most of the bishops where you don't have to I mean, it's not in a matter of precept of sin for many of the bishops oh I don't know, <laughs> you know uh, they, they're just so used to the whole idea that they they can't get it through their skulls that when the precept does, ends in force now many of the bishops of course thankfully have reinstituted the Sunday obligation but when it isn't enforced it may not be the most ideal way to attend mass on the television or whatever, but you're not missing mass by your own fault, contrary to the third commandment when, in, in that context. So it's, it's hard sometimes. People don't make distinctions. And I've even had people who've come with wanting advice about their cat.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> and they somehow think that, Not feeding their cat properly falls under the category of mortal sin or something. I just, I I don't know what to say.
1: (laughs) Joy writes in, I am currently dating a Catholic who has divorced his non-baptized ex. I believe the ex-wife is a non-believer and they had a civil wedding. Can I marry him in the Catholic Church and what can I do to be able to do so?
2: All right, now let me let me get this straight again. These marital problems are so, okay, the spouse is non-baptized.
1: Correct. But
2: the other spouse is Catholic. Correct. And they were married before a justice of the peace. Correct. They were married before a justice of the peace. The marriage isn't real. Correct. Doesn't matter. <laughs> a Catholic is bound, at least to say his vows, uh, before a priest or a deacon. Right. So yes you can, but um, I don't know. It's very I'd be sure that the guy knows what he's getting into this time.
1: Yeah, and uh, and she definitely is going to have to even though it's not a formal case, she would still need to have an official
2: dispensation from disparity right. of cult, yeah, I think. Yeah. I, be- I believe it's called. Yes. Yeah. Beautiful. All right. In That's the sense that you years. in the sense that you went to an, another religion or civil ceremony. To uh, be married. Now, there are places, as you know, where because of the civil nature of the society, the anti-Catholic nature of the society, you have to go through two marriage ceremonies. Mexico is one of them. And so you go through the civil ceremony, but that's only to establish the civil effects, which would be stuff like sharing property. But the actual marriage itself before God, they have to go through another wedding ceremony. Uh, as far as the church is concerned
1: and back to our discussion of mortal sin kevin in tennessee says i have a child that appears he has no issue with breaking the commandment of honoring thy father and mother while this is a venial sin if he has the attitude of i don't care that i will do it again and will not confess my sin because i'm not sorry does this then turn into a mortal sin
2: uh, I would say it depends on how, what it's about, if, if he's going to murder you. Yes, it would. Uh, but if it's just that he doesn't want to wash the dishes, uh, no, I don't think so. You y- look, y- y- <laughs> it's not, though it's divine law, it's not like human law where we make law books with grading all these things. I believe sometimes in confession, people have to use their brains and common sense. Uh, sometimes I'll ask a person, does that make any sense to you, what you just told me? Oh, it's supposed to make sense. Uh-huh. It's supposed to make sense. So if it's about something trivial, or let's say he's 13, I mean, no 13-year-old is going to tell you they're going to do what you want, or if they do, they it's very rare. Uh, just be patient, all right? <laughs> Things change.
1: Uh, Maria in Bethesda, Maryland, would like to know, how did Jesus' tasting physical death save us, not from physical death, but eternal death?
2: Well, because it's it, in order for the original sin to be atoned, some punishment for the original sin had to be suffered. Now, it wouldn't make any sense for Jesus to assume a moral defect from the original sin, like uh, ignorance, malice, or even concupiscence, because that would detract from his perfect obedience, or by his perfect obedience he reverses Adam's sin and thus opens the gates of paradise for us. So the only defect that Christ can assume is one that's not moral, namely suffering and death. So his physical death is the punishment which makes satisfaction because it's embraced in perfect obedience of our lord in his soul
1: how's your uh, how's your crusade history knowledge oh
2: it's i actually know a lot about the crusades why because
1: dan writes in did pope urban the guarantee salvation to any catholic crusaders who died fighting in the crusades
2: Uh, Well, Pope Urban II, yes, in a sense, because you got an indulgence for doing so, but not in the sense that you didn't have to obey the moral law or confess your sins in the future or something like that. Uh, The people that took the cross, as I recall, received the plenary indulgence. Remember, that's for past sins and not for sins as such. as with the temporal punishment due to
1: sin. Uh, Robin writes in, she says, uh, Hi, Father, I'd like to know your thoughts on women lectors and altar servers. I know it was changed during the Second Vatican Council, and Pope Francis changed canon law to layperson, but I'm struggling with women doing certain things that's been restricted to men for 2,000 years.
2: Well, first of all, it wasn't approved in the Second Vatican Council. The idea of the woman lector did come along fairly Soon, but the idea of a woman altar server was not approved in the Second Vatican Council. That idea was not approved until approximately 1988. And it was only approved by a sleight of hand, (laughs) where while the Pope was out of town, some cardinal approved it and didn't even ask him. Uh, Now, I, I guess as such, there's nothing evil about uh, women acolytes or women electors. Uh, But as far as the acolyte is concerned, especially, they're so intimately connected with the service at the altar that it's always been considered to be something that so touches the priesthood and the diaconate that it's reserved to men. Today, because of the feminist movement, people wanted to expand it to women. And, of course, part of the reason... Not, not the only reason, obviously, but part of the reason is that they had women up there dressed in cassocks and surpluses. That might make the smooth the path a little bit for something further. If that's the reason you like it, that's not a good reason. On the other hand, if you really think that your daughter should have service at the altar, um, I, I think that that would be acceptable I, as such. Not necessarily desirable, but acceptable as such. And um, also, the more the girls get involved, the less sometimes the boys are involved. And as you know, the boys used to look on service at the altar as kind of a, an opening to vocations of the priesthood. So all these things are considerations that need to be made my difficulty is primarily with the idea that it's been forced on people, pastors especially, who don't really want it. I don't think this should ever be forced. If a person really chooses to do this now the Holy See's allowed it, then okay, but it, it, it shouldn't be forced on anybody.
1: Uh, Frank would like to know, what does it mean to have a devotion? Most specifically, what does a devotion to the most precious blood of Jesus mean?
2: Devotion, actually, is part of the virtue of religion. And it comes, it's the inner act of it, it comes from a movement of the will toward uh, affirming a divine good in something. So a devotion to the most precious blood would mean that you actually love the blood of Christ because this blood was the means by which your redemption was accomplished, and it also shows how deeply the love of God is for us. So to approach something with the devout mind is to approach it very freely and very lovingly.
1: This is a mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Thursday. We're not taking any phone calls today. Uh, Mario writes in, how does the church defend the perpetual virginity of Mary?
2: the perpetual virginity of mary is something that's always been taught it's never recounted that really joseph and mary had any other children than jesus and she conceived him uh, by virgin birth on the holy spirit i know they refer uh, the protestants always talk about this it's an old objection referring to the brothers and sisters of our lord but in other parts of scripture it's very clear that those terms are used also for the extended family so they could be your cousins or something like that the perpetual virginity of mary is a theological position also based on the idea that christ is so all-consuming when you come to love him he is after all the infinite god that there was no other reason for mary to have any other children now and the josephite marriage Oh, this is a long and interesting theological problem, too. Uh, If you forbid the the idea of ever consummating your marriage, that makes your marriage invalid. But what Joseph and Mary did was God had willed to them they should not consummate their marriage. And they gave themselves in marriage to each other under the proviso that should God ever reveal to them that he, cha- he wants them to consummate their marriage, that they would do it. And in fact, he didn't, and that's for that reason. But they were open to doing so if God should ever reveal it, and that's why they actually have a true
1: marriage. Um, again, it's a mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Thursday. Check out the Fathers of Mercy Hour this Sunday and every Sunday morning at 4 a.m. Eastern Time right here on EWTN Radio. Roger writes, if Jesus is the theophany of God, does only he receive relative Latria?
2: Well, as a human being, yes. (laughs) You know, in his human flesh, yes, that's true. But the Latria, remember, is a recognition of divinity. So when God reveals himself on Mount Sinai, for example, or in the sacrifices in the temple the bright shining cloud that would receive latria and so would the presence of the holy spirit but uh, jesus is the one who only takes flesh and so our adoration our, our veneration our worship of him physically is uh given only to him but not in the sense exclusively because the also the other manifestations of God. remember When Moses saw the burning bush in the bright shining cloud, of course, some of the iconographers of the Eastern Church take that to be Mary and Jesus, the burning bush. But you remember that he removed his shoes because he was in the divine presence, which is Latria.
1: Um, An email here from Nathan. Jesus says the greatest commandment is to love God with your whole mind and heart. Is it a mortal sin to not do this? If so, how can we ever be in a state of grace? Okay,
2: mortal sins have to be actions. So if by your action you demonstrate that you don't love God, or you act contrary completely to the love which God asks of you, and that's especially in the commandments. No one can say he loves God and disobeyed the commandments. St. John is very clear about that. Uh, That would be a mortal sin. But look, (laughs) again, I don't understand this legalistic mentality. Loving God with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength is is what we're supposed to strive for. It's violations of that, like deeds, um, like blasphemy or whatever, murder or whatever. Those are the mortal sins. No, it would not be a sin. It would be what they used to call an imperfect act, which is not the same as a sin.
1: And Aaron writes in, if Jesus spoke in hyperbole so often, how do we know that he wasn't speaking in hyperbole when talking about his flesh and blood in the Eucharist?
2: Uh, Well, first of all, I'm not really sure how often Jesus spoke in hyperbole. It's true, Semiticisms are often... Easy to pass a camel to pass with an eye of a needle or something like that. But Christ was very specific about his body and blood. And when the Jews objected to it, remember, and they said it was a hard state, he even got more specific. And the words that are used about it, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, the eating becomes even chewing, like this. He was very specific and very graphic about it. Uh, this is a typical Protestant objection. He says, I'm a door. Is he a door? No, he's not a door. <laughs> well, that's not a metaphor, all right, to say my body and this is my blood. He's very, very serious about that. And you can see it because, remember, if he said it was it was a door, well, everybody didn't walk away and find that blasphemous. But when he said, it, you know, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in me. They found that blasphemous because they knew exactly what he was saying.
1: Susan is an eighth grade religion teacher, and she says, we are about to jump into the problem of evil. Can you comment on the moral argument for the existence of God and the problem of evil?
2: Okay, there are two expressions of evil. it's physical evil and moral evil. Physical evil is built into the existence of the world because it's material. So one thing's, you know, food is another thing's poison. So what's good for the lamb, what's good for the lion is wicked for the lamb because the lion can eat the lamb. But this is because of the necessity of how material beings operate with each other. Moral evil, on the other hand, springs from the inner nature of man and it has to do with the fact that because we're not in heaven yet we have a choice god does not want puppets he wants sons daughters and heirs he does not want slaves so he allows us the freedom to make our own moral choices about this he is not responsible for those but he allows us the freedom to do it God would be responsible for physical evil in the sense that he created the world. But that's, again, only because of the way matter relates to each other. In order for some things to prosper, other things have to suffer. Now, the problem of evil is, as you know, a deep, deep problem. And one of the St. Thomas Aquinas, one of the only books of the Old Testament, he commented on because he thought it was so important was the book of Job. And he wrote a literal commentary. And we actually have his autograph in his handwriting because the problem of the suffering of the just was a very difficult problem for people in the old Testament. And what basically, well, I could, you know, I once translated this book it's 300 pages long, but the bottom line is the ultimate evil for a human being is to lose heaven. Job suffers all these terrible punishments, as you know, but as long as he has not lost heaven, he's not condemned to be human. In fact, in a sense, he demonstrates his faith by becoming more human. And all the friends and all their arguments and the wife with the curse got to die and all that, it, it, it puts in relief the afterlife, which at the time the Jews found was a developing idea for them. Because their idea was, well, if you're a good person, you should experience good things, period, wealth, etc. In fact, Job was a good person, but he had all those things taken from him. And the reason, remember, was because Satan said, not for nothing does Job fear God. In other words, Job loved God for the wrong reason, which was for material gain. No, when he can suffer the loss of all that and still maintain that he loves God, that shows that the love of god is the most important thing and in fact then you have the famous line i know modern scripture scholars don't like interpreting this in any kind of literal sense but it's very hard to figure out why it's there i know my redeemer liveth whom I myself shall see in my flesh i shall see god which is heaven
1: and finally marcia says father brian About five years ago, I was picked to be on a jury. Uh, I did go, and before the trial started, the judge asked if any one of us would have a problem with sentencing the man whose trial we would be hearing to death. This man was accused of robbing and killing an elderly woman. I raised my hand and was excused from the jury. Isn't it wrong for us to condemn a person to death? I grew up believing and still do believe that only God will take us from this earthly world, and he will be our judge. Am I wrong?
2: Uh, well, I would say this. You are wrong in the sense that civil society has been given by God, not the individuals, but civil society in certain cases, the right to remove them from civil society permanently, which could only be done by death. Now, as you know, there's a huge debate in the Catholic Church over capital punishment. The Pope himself has written that it should never be done. On the other hand, They haven't changed the catechism that says that um, uh, murder is to kill an innocent human being. Obviously, then it can't be murder if the person's really guilty. And they don't exactly say it's a sin. I forget what word they use, but it's a very innocuous word. So you you may think that, and you're perfectly free to think that as a Catholic. But someone else might think the opposite, and they'd be perfectly free to think that too. Provided it wasn't for a bonus of private revenge or something like that.
1: Father, would you leave us with a blessing?
2: May the blessing of Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit descend upon you and remain with you forever.
1: Amen. Thanks so much for listening to this uh, uh, mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Thursday. On behalf of our host, Father Brian Mulady, our producer, Michael McCall, I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in back at it again uh, on Friday with our very own Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan in the house, and then we'll kick it back to Monday with a brand new week of Open Line with Father John Tregilio. Until we get together tomorrow, God bless.